This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Few words in the English language evoke the same sort of visceral reaction from both Christians and non-Christians as the word Calvinism. To many, inside the church and outside, it is associated with the death of Miguel Servetus. To others, it is associated with a tyrannical deity. And perhaps for still others now, it might be associated with the young, restless, and reformed movement among evangelicals. Daryl Hart, adjunct professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California, and visiting assistant professor of church history at Hillsdale College, has published an important new volume on the history of Calvinism and of the Reformed churches, covering 500 years and several continents in the space of 300 pages. Calvinism, a history, published this year by Yale University Press. Hi, Daryl, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Well, you've written a major new book published by Yale University Press, Calvinism, A History. The obvious question is, why this book? There are a lot of books about Calvinism. There's a classic by John T. McNeil from years ago. There's a major book by Philip Benedict on the social history of the Reformed churches. So why this book? Well, I'm still scratching my head on that one myself, since the editors at Yale approached me after actually talking to some other authors. So my name came up, and I'm not sure why my editor wanted this book, aside from a sense that Calvinism is important. It's something that's highly recognizable. The Benedict book that you mentioned is stellar. It's a brilliant piece of scholarship, but it only goes up to 1700. That's all that he intended to do. It barely gets into North America. So there's that side of it that it doesn't extend then Calvinism around the world, which is also part of what the editors at Yale wanted. But then the McNeil book is dated in a way because it is over 50 years old, almost 60 now. And I did notice in going back through it while writing this book that he takes the stories of Calvinism in particular countries in some cases only up till the 18th century and maybe only into the 19th century for the United States. So there was a sense that to take this story all the way through to the 20th century and around the world that the other books that are sort of standard works haven't done it. It's interesting that the title of your book is Calvinism, A History, and yet the book covers a lot more than Calvinism narrowly defined. So talk a little bit about the ambiguity of writing a book about the Reformed churches, really, because you begin well before Calvin, and you cover a movement that's much larger than a single segment or one person, and yet it's titled Calvinism. I think that's interesting. It says something about the power of that word. Right. And I've already noticed that some of the Calvinistic Baptists are upset that they're slighted in this book. And I mean, I would have preferred to use the word Reformed Protestantism, the words Reformed Protestantism as a title. But of course, no one would know what that is. <laughs> I mean, so the readers out there who associate, who know Calvinism in some way because of the Puritans and Puritan studies, or because of Max Weber, or because of Kuiper and his claims about Calvinism, that's an easier title identity for the book and this history. But it does set up a problem of expectations that won't be met. And 
I do think that Calvinism in its fullest sense is in the Reformed churches. And I think you ask any Lutheran that, they probably agree. And I understand how Baptists, and particularly the English Protestants, picked up Calvinistic theology, but then didn't pick up the reforms that were associated with Calvin and Zwingli. And I'm also still, uh, I went to a conference in 2009, the big academic conference at Geneva that Philip Benedict organized, and I still remember vividly the scholar from Zurich, whose name I forget, but his complaint that here people were in Geneva to honor Calvin when, in fact, the Reformed churches started a decade earlier in Zurich with Zwingli. So the, the folks in Zurich still want pride of place, in effect, for what they did and how they initiated the reforms that Calvin then, of course, extended and picked up on. And the relationship between Zurich and Geneva was dicey at times, too. So, I mean, the title is in some ways off, but we can't use Reformed Protestant to carry the same weight that Calvinism does. So we just had to go with that. It's interesting that our fortunes and our brand, if you will, is so identified with a single figure because, as I'm sure you know, the adjective Calvinist, or the name, was originally an epithet. And neither Calvin nor Luther wanted movements named after them or denominations named after themselves. And then, in light of a lot of recent scholarship, you know, it, to talk about Calvinism as if it were coterminous with Reformed makes Calvin the central actor in the Reformed tradition, and that's problematic, too. Talk about that a little bit. Well, partly because of the Reformed churches having a Presbyterian or synodical polity. You know, we haven't had bishops, so Calvin could never function as a bishop. No Reformed minister could. There was always a parity. Calvin himself would not have wanted to function as a bishop. Exactly. And I don't highlight this in the book because I only have been reading about it lately, but I do think that the Reformed churches picked up on the conciliar tradition in a lot of ways and saw the value of having a parity of church officers. But, you know, I do think that Calvin did with his ecclesiastical ordinances, did set a standard for Presbyterian polity that others could pick up on. And then Geneva itself, because it was a city for so many refugees, and because of Geneva's connection to the French church, and the French churches were really remarkable. I'm more and more convinced of that. And the French churches, the French reforms sort of spread up into the Low Countries and were partly responsible for what was going on in the Netherlands. And then, of course, folks like Knox and other English, Knox, of course, is a Scot, but English reformers go to Geneva in exile and take the blueprint back. So there's a sense, not so much maybe Calvin, but Geneva itself becomes a model for reform in Europe, and then it's extended around the world as these European nations become imperial or colonial powers. So you can see, in a way, how it's understandable that even though Calvin himself was only one figure, and even though Calvin's theology was one person, one minister's take on things, but the sort of institutional aspects of Geneva, upon which Calvin had a great influence, did extend around the world. So there's a certain sense in which the title is fitting, and I don't mean to go back and forth on my answers here, but I guess my sense is that Geneva did have a much greater global impact than Zurich did, and that is 
partly, I mean, it's partly circumstantial. It's not because Calvin was the genius. It's not because he was the smartest, the brightest, the best. But it has a lot to do with where Geneva was situated and the importance of the French Reformation as well and how that moved up into other parts of Northern Europe and then across the Channel into England and Scotland. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And there were real differences weren't there, between Zurich and Geneva. Not only political differences, but theological and particularly ecclesiastical. Right. Unfortunately, because this is supposed to be a manageable book, so it's roughly 300 pages in text, you know, and I had to cover 500 years in five continents. I couldn't get into the detail of those differences the way I might have liked to just for intellectual curiosity's sake. But, you know, I think some of the highlights are there about differences on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, differences on relationship between church and state, differences even over music. I think Calvin, Zwingli, and the Main were agreed on the importance of exclusive psalmody, but there was the option in Zurich in a way that wasn't the case in Geneva for actually chanting the psalms, I guess, without any music. I mean, just reading them out loud rather than singing them, whereas Calvin, of course, and the Geneva pastors hired musicians to write songs for these. And many of these tunes, the Genevan tunes, are still vital within the Dutch Reformed tradition. There are a lot of misconceptions about Calvinism and the Reformed churches more broadly. What did you find in your research to be some of the biggest misconceptions about Calvinism? I think the biggest one is this idea that Calvinism shaped the modern world, whether it be through capitalism or democracy. And here I'm not saying anything that I didn't learn from reading Philip Benedict's book. He's very thoughtful on cutting through a lot of those older 19th century accounts of almost a Calvinist triumphalism that Calvinism gave to the modern world, liberty, democracy, markets, and whatnot. And that is is such bad history. But it does continue to inspire people, especially when you come even to the American founding. People love to talk about the Calvinistic influence on the American war for independence in the Constitution. And I mean, it's so much more variegated than that. But the nations that were reformed or had largely reformed elements in their national churches, especially England and Scotland and the Netherlands, they became chief exporters of Calvinism around the world. And so there was a kind of modernizing aspect as those nations went out and planted colonies for Calvinism to be associated with that kind of so-called progress. But it's really circumstantial that Calvinism caught on in those countries And Lutheranism caught on where it did, and Lutheranism didn't expand, say, in the same way that Calvinism did. But I think you can see Lutherans and Roman Catholics in Europe picking up on similar arguments about politics or markets and economics or legal life that would equally have fueled the modern world. And I'm more and more convinced, as I've done reading since writing the book, on medieval political history, that the roots of American constitutionalism or American notions of freedom really are in the important debates that took place over the papacy, over councils, over canon law, over Roman law that were going on in the medieval period. So for Calvinists to take credit for that really is boasting and not in a good sense. The Calvinists did form a kind of a bridge, though, don't you think, between the older medieval conciliarism and constitutionalism and helped communicate that in some ways or transmit it to the modern world. You'd see that in people like Althusius and others and in the resistance literature written by Beza and the rest. Right. I would say that. But also, I mean, even 
I'm more and more aware of the Gallican Church, the French Church that was Roman Catholic, and the real rivalry that's going on between the Gallicanists and the Ultramontanists, especially in the 19th century, for instance. But the French are really interesting <laughs> group, and they're not highly regarded among Americans, but there's a real vigor and vitality to Roman Catholicism in France that goes in a variety of different directions. And I think it's possible also, though, to say that the French in some ways also were a bridge, the French Roman Catholics, of some of that conciliar tradition. And it even plays out in the French Revolution. Of course, then the papacy really cracks down on that, partly for good reasons, the way that the French clergy are treated in that. And this goes back then to Calvin. And I haven't figured this out by any means, but Calvin being a Frenchman. I mean, there's something going on in France in late medieval, early modern period that is quite creative. And so I'm increasingly wondering whether France may be both Protestant and Roman Catholic sides are sort of the bridge between the medieval world and the modern world. It's interesting, too, in some of the older accounts of Calvinism and the founding and spreading of the Reformed churches, the way that they are often portrayed as triumphing, conquering, sort of marching with jack boots across Europe. And I've often found that to be really contrary. It's a common portrayal. I'm sure you've seen it. And yet that's not really what one actually reads in the history. Jarmid McCulloch, in his history of the Reformation, shows how between 1600 and 1700, I mean, Protestants really did recede, both Calvinists and Lutherans, to certain sectors of Northern Europe, but that after Trent, Rome really pushed back quite effectively. And even then, where Calvinism or Reformed churches prospered in the 16th century, again, it struck me in going through the material how accidental it was. And I'm more also aware now of how important the threat of the Turks or the Ottomans in the eastern part of Europe were to distracting the emperor and other kings from cracking down on Protestants, both Lutheran and Calvinists, the way they could have had there not been this assault by the Muslims on Europe. So, you know, I don't like to read Providence, but providentially, it's quite striking that the kinds of forces that came together in the 16th century that allowed these hiccups like Zurich in Geneva eventually to gain a foothold and then to spread this message to pick up on other reforming efforts that people were calling for in Europe and then the political circumstances of Henry needing an heir in England. So he sets up his own church and makes him the head of the church. I mean, it's not the way any of us would have organized a reformation, but it is in part how the reformation happened in England. And Calvinism wasn't as strong or as dominant in England as it maybe could have been elsewhere. But what happened in England with Puritans and then eventually in Scotland with Presbyterians there is of crucial importance, especially in the United States and Canada, but also in Australia. The English-speaking world is where Calvinism flourished, and some of it goes back to very strange political developments in the 16th century that no one really could have anticipated or even vouched for. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited. 
Register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. When you think about the amount of Reformed and Calvinist blood spilled in the 16th century, mainly under persecution by Roman Catholics, thinking of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, and then the, the slaughter of the Dutch Reformed a little bit earlier than that. Some scholars have noted that no movement, including the Anabaptists, had more martyrs in the 16th century than the Reformed. Part of that, too, could be, and this is one of the arguments that Benedict makes, is that the Calvinists may have been more ornery <laughs> than the other Protestants. I mean, the Anabaptists were in their own way, although in a very pacifist way. But Well, not always. Okay, but still, I mean, Calvinists were going into churches and destroying images and destroying statues and whatnot. And so, in a sense, and this is to Calvinism's credit, that Reformed saw that to be true to the Word of God, meant also reforming the churches and their worship, not simply the teaching on salvation. And so they wanted to carry through the Reformation into these other important aspects of church life. And Benedict does think that that extension of the Reformed impulse into those other areas is what made Calvinists dig in their heels more, and perhaps make them more threatening, and therefore making them more willing to fight or resist in some ways, hence the resistance literature, to tyranny. So there is perhaps a sense in which Calvinism deserves some credit in that sense for wanting to be reformed according to the word across the board in church life and not not in some maybe moderate or halfway measure. I'm not trying to say anything bad about Lutheranism in that way, but Calvin and, and the other Reformed theologians did want to take the reform farther than Luther did anyway. You very much identify with the Calvinist and Reformed tradition, and yet you're writing an academic book for people who are coming to it from the outside, wanting to know about it as a historical phenomenon. And so you needed to be appropriately objective. How difficult was it for you to maintain the necessary objectivity to do a project like this? Well, in some ways it wasn't difficult, at least because I was learning so much as I went. I couldn't have an agenda on interpreting European Christianity, since that's not my training. But I also was aware from the outset the editors wanted a book that was going to be as lively a narrative as possible. And that meant not trying to get into issues that maybe strike outsiders as arcane as far as three office or two office or something like that, but sort of keep the thing going. And I also thought that what would attract people from the outside, but this also plays somewhat to my own interest, is the relationship between the church and the state or religion and politics. But I wasn't trying to grind an axe here as much as I was trying to simply account for the political developments that allowed churches, like the Reformed churches, to get up and running 
in the 16th century in places like Zurich and Geneva. And, you know, that requires looking at the kind of stalemate that went on in certain sectors of Europe with politics. But then also that leads to then nations becoming independent, like the Netherlands, like Scotland in a way, and establishing a national church as part of their identity. And that also then allows Reformed churches to flourish in ways that would have been unimaginable. And then, you know, you take the story farther, though, and you take it into contexts like North America, where you have a variety of churches and immigrants and settlers, and how that may play out for something like the American Revolution and notions of toleration. And then eventually getting into the last part of the book where you have these important recovery efforts by important figures like Thomas Chalmers in Scotland and Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, J. Gresson Machen, whom I did work in, thankfully, in the United States, but Karl Barth also, 20th century Germany and Switzerland. And all of them are asserting in some ways that the church needs to be the church and the church needs to back away from its political standing as part of the establishment in these churches. And it's it's remarkable to see after 1800 how these Reformed Church leaders, from a you know, especially including Bart, he's by no means the most orthodox of guys, but still making a similar sort of move, so that you know you have a magisterial reformation that then after 1700 has to deal with political rulers who are too much intervening in church life and maybe compromising the church's witness. To eventually the church leaders saying, okay, well then let's get out of that political business and adopt a more spiritual understanding of the church. So in that sense, I guess I had a little bit of my own interest in church and state going on in the book, but I also thought that was something that was going to interest other readers outside the tradition because most people are interested in religion and its interaction with politics. I mean, that's usually a pretty good sell. And I thought that would do justice to the story of how Calvinism started and how it spread, because it really does start and spread thanks to its involvement, both for good and for ill, with the state. Is it the case, do you think, in the modern period that Calvinism's fortunes have declined because of the end of the church-state alliance, that we just haven't flourished without the support of the magistrate enforcing Calvinism or Reformed theology, piety, and practice on particular areas? I think it's true to say you can say that numerically that there are fewer Reformed Protestants now without the kind of record-keeping that the state churches would have kept so that anyone born in Scotland would have been a member of the Kirk. You know, we are now in a voluntary church where people join church of their own volition and support ministers out of their own pocket. I mean, I, there's still some subsidies of state churches in Europe and even for churches outside the state, I mean, in Northern Ireland and Scotland, for instance. So that's one way in which, just in sort of bean-counting terms, Calvinism has declined. But I also think that there's been a theological flourishing, aside from the really high watermarks of Reformed Orthodoxy, both at Dort, say, and Westminster in the 17th century. But I still think Reformed theology is flourishing, and it's barely possible to keep up with all the biblical and theological scholarship produced, even in just an English-speaking world, on Reformed topics. And you might argue that it's hard to know, it would be hard to measure, but that Reformed convictions and commitments are stronger perhaps now than they were in previous times, so that while you are lacking in some ways with the political or cultural establishment, it may be made up for in informal ways. But I think one of the tensions in contemporary Reformed life is a kind of pining for the glory days of when Reformed Protestants were running the show, or at least had the ear of the people running the show. And we're now just 
pikers, like everybody else, were just one item in the yellow pages of church life. But I also think that this afflicts Roman Catholics, too, who would like to go back to the glory days of the papal states and the papal armies and whatnot, when popes could call up various kings or rulers and have them wage war on their behalf. I mean, everyone now is in a situation where the church is removed from the state, and all churches have to recruit members, recruit ministers on the basis of their own appeal. They cannot rely, except, you know, in some rare instances here and there, they cannot rely on the power or the appeal of the state to recruit people. They have to do it by persuading them, by the truth of their message. And I think that's, you know, you have trade-offs. I'm a modern person I think that's probably the way it should go, but I also think in most respects, it's the way that Christ and the apostles and the early church operated. They didn't have state helping them out. In fact, the state was far from helping them out. Unless you count putting pitch on people and setting them on fire as a way of helping them out. And I'm not saying that the Bible somehow, because it was, especially the New Testament, was set in this period when there were no state churches, that that is the blueprint for the rest of society. But If it was legitimate for Christianity to operate that way, it was legitimate for Christ and the apostles to operate the way they did or had to, given church-state relations. I think it's okay for us to think about that as a possible model and that we don't have to resurrect some kind of ecclesiastical establishment. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There are segments of the Reformed churches and the Calvinist movement more broadly, of which people are not very aware. One of those would be the inroads made by Reformed theology into Poland and Central Europe. Talk about that for just a little bit. I can't say that much because I don't know it that well, and it didn't last that long. But this is another one of those cases where, because of the threat of the Ottomans in Eastern Europe, there was greater room for ruling class who either were frustrated with Rome's control of the church and wanted a little bit more room to maneuver. Maybe they were really convinced of the truth of Reformed Protestantism or Protestantism more generally. Maybe they were attracted first to some of Luther's calls for reform and they didn't like the way Luther was treated, but then they read more deeply in Reformed literature. There were rulers, but it was very much driven by rulers who called for reforms in the churches and then established Reformed churches in those areas because they wanted the church to be reformed. They called their own and hired their own ministers. And that lasted throughout much of the 16th century, again, because of a variety of social and political circumstances. But Rome did push back, and the formation of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit, was very influential in providing educational opportunities so that children, the sons of many of these rulers, eventually were educated by the Jesuits, and you have a reversion back to Roman Catholicism in those areas. But it's striking what happened in Lithuania and Poland and Hungary. And the Hungarian church, of course, is still, there are still Reformed churches. In fact, I think the current prime minister in Hungary is often identified as a Calvinist in some of the news reports I see. So there's a side of Eastern European Calvinism that people don't know about. And there's some of that in this book. It's a small part of the book, but if they want to know more about it, I recommend Benedict's book. He's very good on treating that side of Calvinism. 
Calvinism in some ways flourished in the New World in the 18th and to a degree in the 19th, and arguably its fortunes, at least outwardly, may have waned a little bit in the 20th century. As you were saying, it depends on where we're looking. What happened at the same time there is this flourishing in the New World? What happened at the same time in Europe to the fortunes of Calvinism? Particularly, I'm thinking about the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. One of the things I guess I was struck by in looking at the state churches in Scotland and the Netherlands and in Switzerland, I mean, they weren't state churches because Switzerland is divided up into cantons, but the city churches in the Netherlands is that these churches are part of what the French revolutionaries would consider the ancient regime. They're part of a political establishment, and they get bogged down in having to serve two masters, in effect. And so there's this great instances of moderatism or the moderate party gaining the upper hand in the Scottish Kirk and controversies that ensue over that. Among them, the Marrow controversy, which eventually leads to the formation of the secession church, the associate reformed or associate reformed Presbyterians. But in Switzerland, too, the churches sort of hit it seems to me a, a wall there in flourishing, and a lot of it has to do with the compromises the churches have to make with the state. In the Netherlands, there's not as much coherence at the national level in the Netherlands because these provinces can really operate on their own, but there's great dissatisfaction with the ecclesiastical establishment. There's a rise and flourishing of various conventicles of Dutch Calvinists there. There's great variety going on in the Reformed churches. So it's not the best of situations, and then the French Revolution comes at the end of the 18th century and really upends European politics. doesn't affect Scotland, really, that much, because being across the channel and all that, but there's a new order that emerges for these state churches after the French Revolution. And then there also are these revival movements that occur in European Protestantism, led by people like the Haldanes or the Daubigny in Switzerland, but other parts of Europe, that are partly confessional, but also in some ways more evangelical, as we would maybe use that word in the United States. So Thomas Chalmers, for instance, picks up on some of this. He's part of this evangelical group, but he's also partly confessional, partly trying to return to the glory days of the Scottish Kirk, and which leads to the formation of the Free Church in 1843. In the Netherlands, though, you have a secession in 1834 that is both confessional but also very pietistic in ways. So it's a very curious set of circumstances that lead the churches through the 18th century and the 19th century, the Reformed churches. But it generally breaks down into parties between the established churches, the state churches being much more liberal, and the conservative churches having to find alternatives outside the state church, whether it means secession, whether it means conventicles within the state churches, and then the theology that the conservatives pick up on can be both confessional, but it can also be pietistic. And in many cases, it's a combination of the two. As we draw this to a close, how do you think about the state of the Reformed and Calvinist churches broadly now at the end of your research? How has this book affected the way you look at the status quo? I think it's made me a little bit more willing to recognize that every point in uh, the history of the church, you're not going to win all your battles, that the church is always conflicted. It's always a set in some ways of a kind of compromises that have to take place because just for the sake of order in the churches and trying to achieve some kind of harmony and wisdom. So I guess that's one thing to recognize, especially if you take an anti-triumphalist view of Calvinism. If you take a triumphalist view, you would then have this golden age in the past, and it's all downhill since then. 
And I think for a while I have really backed away from thinking of a golden age of Reformed Protestantism or Presbyterianism. But this book has probably convinced me of that all the more, and it's convinced me that we are all pilgrims, and we're trying to do the best we can. And I think I have a better sense now of how some of the history behind us now is still playing out and continuing to attract or continuing to direct us away from certain trends in the churches in the past. But I am much more content to think that we are going to continue to muddle along in the best sense of that word, trying to be faithful as much as possible, but knowing that we're never going to get it right this side of glory, and knowing that there's not going to be a recovery of a golden age because the golden age didn't exist. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be upset with certain things that might happen in the OPC, and it doesn't mean I'm not going to voice my mind at session or Presbyterian or General Assembly meetings, that I still think I know what the truth is and what the Bible teaches and what our confessions teach. So I'm not waffling on those matters, but I can also see how, I guess, the way these things were debated, argued, determined in the past, gives me a greater, I guess, a sense of humility in a way that it's always been a struggle and it's going to continue to be. And I think if young ministers, officers, church members can learn that lesson, that's good. And I think maybe this history of Calvinism could help them to teach that. But I also think it's something you learn over time. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.